0: Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 8. How will history repeat itself? Why does the Book of Mormon include only select portions of Nephite history and exclude so much else? What impact did Isaiah have on Nephite prophets?
1: Welcome everybody to podcast number 8, How Will History Repeat Itself? We read in Jacob chapter 3 verse 13 how the Book of Mormon history was selectively written down. As Jacob says, a hundredth part of the proceedings of this people, that is the Nephites and Lamanites, which now began to be numerous, cannot be written upon these plates. But many of their proceedings are written upon the larger plates and their wars and their contentions and the reigns of their kings. Now, The larger plates are also the plates of Nephi, but they are a more detailed account
0: that Mormon and also Nephi and Jacob chose to select from
1: in order to start this small record that we have called the Book of Mormon. And so that is why they say that the hundredth part of their proceedings could not be written. And imagine that, just you know, less, than, less than 1% of their history on the large plates is written in our current Book of Mormon. So I ask, what are the criteria they use for excluding so much, including only those parts that we now have, which are also called the lesser portion in other parts of the Book of Mormon? All right, so we have to answer that, and the answer is Isaiah's criteria. But Isaiah also did that, He didn't record everything that was happening in his day and not even close. He chose those events that he saw in vision from his day or soon thereafter would repeat themselves in the end time. As the rabbi told me, it can be read on two levels, Isaiah, and so can the Book of Mormon, their own day and the end time. There are many wars in the Book of Mormon, second half of Alma, but those are very special wars, that I describe in great detail, and we'll get into in a, in a moment. And then I'm quoting again from Words of Mormon one five, Less than a hundredth part was written. He says, I chose these things to finish my record upon them, that is the small plates of Nephi, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi, and I cannot, cannot write a hundredth part of the things of my people. So he finishes his record, Mormon finishes his record, upon the small plates of Nephi, upon which Nephi and Jacob wrote personally, to finish his record, but he's taking it from the history that's on the large plates of Nephi, from the time of Lehi all the way to the end of Book of Mormon history. And then in Ether 15, verse 33, we read, The hundredth part have I not written.
0: So that's Moronite, speaking of the record of the Jaredites or of the Book of Mormon. Either way.
1: So, this idea of less than a hundredth part is mentioned seven times in the Book of Mormon. In Jacob 3, verse 13, the words of Mormon, 1-5. Helaman 3, 14. 3rd Nephi, chapter 5, verse 8. Third Nephi, chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. Mormon, chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. And Ether, chapter 15, verse 33. So take note, because what we're going to discuss now is going to be really important, because ancient history serves as a type of the end time, especially when it's chosen selectively by Isaiah and Book of Mormon prophets from things they saw in vision that would repeat themselves in the end time. As we read in 3 Nephi 23, 1 through 3, which we read before, which is part of the manner of the Jews, right? Great are the words of Isaiah for surely he spake touching all things past, present, future but particularly the past and the future. Concerning my people which are the house of Israel therefore it must needs be that he must also speak to the Gentiles because the Gentiles are interacting constantly with the house of Israel and all things that he spake have been and shall be even according to the words which he spake. They have been in his day and they shall be in the future. Same with the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon Prophets were taught the manner of the Jews. And whatever they wrote, whatever any prophet writes, whatever the prophet Joseph Smith writes in the Doctrine and Covenants, same thing. It typifies also something in the future. That's a beautiful thing about scripture. It's also prophecy at the same time. And then, of course, we read and have read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, how ancient history repeats itself. It's a typological worldview. It's not a logical worldview. The Hebrew worldview was typological. History would repeat itself, only on a much larger scale the next time, or each time. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which has been done is what shall be done. Right? There is no new thing under the sun. You've heard that expression. Things keep happening, and do we learn from history? Hopefully, yes. But guess what? Are people learning from history today? (laughs) Look what's happening in the world. Have they learned from the First World War, the Second World War? Have they learned about socialism? Have they learned about, you know, yeah. I'll leave the rest to you to figure it out, but you already know that, I'm sure. All right, so one of the things we read in the Book of Mormon is an exodus pattern We find an exodus pattern in the Book of Mormon. We have seven to to ten exoduses in the Book of Mormon that all follow the same pattern. Isn't that interesting? Now, we've already talked about an end-time exodus from the Book of Isaiah, correct? Which the Book of Mormon writers pick up on. And they're predicting an end-time exodus from the north, south, east, and west, led by kings and queens of the Gentiles, bringing home to Zion the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. Why? Because they'll have extraordinary endowment of power to do that, power over the elements and so forth. These are very special people going to do that from among us, a lot of these saints, fulfilling our role as Ephraimites among them. But in the Book of Mormon, we have Lehi's exodus to the new world from the old Jerusalem. We have Nephi's exodus from the land of first inheritance to the land of Nephi. When he departed from Laman and Lemuel. Then we have King Mosiah's exodus From the land of Nephi down to Zarahemla. We have the exodus of Alma the Elder from the waters of Mormon to the land of Helam. We have Alma the Elder's exodus with his people from the land of Helam down to Zarahemla. We have King Limhi's exodus from the land of Nephi down to Zarahemla. We have the Anti Nephi Lehi's exodus from the land of Nephi down to Zarahemla the Jaredites exodus to the new world, and so forth. The Book of Mormon is full of exoduses. Why? They chose to write about those things because they typify an end-time exodus, plain and simple. The exodus that Isaiah talks about. They're prefiguring it in their history as well. Isn't that interesting how they tie in with Isaiah so closely? You cannot separate the Book of Mormon from Isaiah when you're talking about the end time. And in a way, you cannot separate Isaiah from the Book of Mormon because they fill in a lot of details. It's like a second witness to end time prophecy. So, what is it about this pattern, this Exodus pattern? Well, put all these Exoduses side by side and you see that they have
0: common elements. And those common elements create an Exodus pattern. And what is that? Well, first
1: of all, there's a time of problems, apostasy usually, or threat from other, from other nations or other people. And then a prophet of God leads the people who believe in the Lord or who are loyal to the Lord out of there in a new exodus into another land that they inherit. And that pattern just keeps repeating itself. And that is the end-time exodus that Isaiah predicts that will precede the coming millennial age. They will be led to the Old and New Jerusalems in a new Exodus from all directions of the world. And the Book of Mormon gives us a lot of details just about how that happens or what the circumstances might be for that to happen. Isn't that a beautiful thing that the Book of Mormon does for us? Thank you, Nephi. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you, Mormon, for including those things. Thank you, dear brethren, because Look, it clues us in to how it's going to happen and what our role is going to be and what their role is going to be, those whom we bring to Zion.
0: Beautiful. All right. So then we go to the war pattern in the Book of Mormon.
1: What's the use of all those wars? Why are they included in the Book of Mormon? Isn't that horrible, gruesome stuff? Do you really need to listen to or read all that stuff?
0: Yes, we do, because there is a war pattern also. There are four to five wars in the Book of Mormon where, that are led by Alma the Younger, Captain Moroni,
1: Captain Moroni a number of times, and Helaman also is one of them, and
0: Captain Moroni, huh? And again, Helaman. And, yeah. Read all those scriptures. You can read them in Book of Mormon. Alma chapter 2. Alma chapter 43 and chapter
1: 44. 46. Chapters 48 through 55. Chapters 59 through 62. And Alma 56 through 58. talks about Helaman. Uh, Alma 63. Moronaha. Helaman chapter 1. Chapter 4. Why do you think that Thirteen chapters of Isaiah were included in the Book of Mormon. Chapters 2 through 14 of Isaiah are quoted in 2 Nephi Chapters 12 through 24. Just because of historical interest? I don't think so. Because those wars are going to repeat themselves in our day. Right here in our promised land. Right here in where you're living now. Because I cover the whole land of the Americas. You know how hard it was to inscribe on gold plates? It was laborious. And why would Nephi spend that much time doing so? When those chapters spoke about the apostasy of God's people, the Assyrian invasion of the Promised Land that we read about in the previous podcast, and the worldwide destruction by the Assyrian alliance of nations that comes on the heels of all of that, on the heels of God's people apostatizing and bringing on the Day of Judgment. It's right there in the Book of Mormon in the war pattern. All of these wars, these four to five wars, have common elements. When you put them all side by side, you see
0: that they create a war pattern. And that war pattern is that there is
1: Apostasy among God's people. There's wickedness everywhere in the promised land. So the Lord commissions, allows a foreign power to invade the promised land. An alliance of nations invades the promised land. And starts destroying the wicked. The Lord using the wicked to destroy the wicked. But a righteous prophet of God stands up against this and heads a movement To eventually overthrow the invading power, and that would be the Lord's arm that we're going to talk about, when the arm of the Lord is revealed in power. We talk about the very next podcast. So this war pattern really clues us in the war pattern in the Book of Mormon, of what Isaiah is predicting, which Nephi also quotes in Second Nephi twelve through twenty-four, in those Isaiah chapters that most people just skip over, right? In the King James translation, I don't blame you, really. Read them in my translation, the Isaiah N.C. translation. You'll get a very much clearer idea of what they're talking about. All right, one more scriptural pattern in the Book of Mormon that I want to talk about. Jesus' appearance in the Book of Mormon. President Benson was noted in conference for saying that Jesus coming to the Nephites Was a type and shadow of his coming, of the second coming to Zion in the end time. Of course, we also have a great type in Enoch's people of how Enoch, how he was sent to preach to seven nations who were in a state of abominations and wickedness. And he converted the people of God. He converted a people from these seven nations who became a people of God. And their enemies came against them, their enemies being former friends, associates, family members perhaps. And they went through a series of trials of meeting that opposition and remaining faithful to the Lord, so much so that eventually Enoch led them to become a Zion people. They attained a sanctified state from being wicked, being full of iniquity and so forth, to becoming a sanctified people of God. And then when they reached that sanctified state, and purify their lives, and there was no more iniquity in them than the Savior came and dwelt with them, or the Savior could come to Zion, and eventually Zion was taken up into heaven. And that is also a great pattern for our day. When we establish Zion, and by the way, Zion is never established among Latter-day Saints, as I mentioned previously, is established among the House of Israel, whom the Latter-day Saints gather, whom the kings and queens of the Of the Gentiles gathered to Zion. Then Zion is established, finally, in the Book of Mormon. Read it for yourself. There are those in the beginning, in the days of the prophet Joseph Smith, when the gospel was restored, who sought to bring forth Zion, but they never really attained their goal, did they? When Jesus appears to the Nephites in the Book of Mormon at the land Bountiful, where the righteous were gathered, what was going on? What had just happened? Right? There was a great and terrible destruction throughout all the land, the most horrible thing, the three days of darkness, day and night. Because of the wickedness of the people, cities were buried, cities caught fire, cities were drowned in the sea, cities disappeared under the earth. It was preceded by great and terrible destructions, that's what it calls them. And we know that the Lord's Day of Judgment, the Day of Jehovah, the Day of the Lord, It's also called the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? And some people say, well, it's great for the righteous and terrible for the wicked. It's not true. It doesn't say that. It uses adjectives successively like that to show that it's greatly terrible. Or a great and marvelous work is a greatly marvelous work. That's the meaning of the Hebrew words. And that happened among the Nephites. Because of their wickedness, there were great and terrible destructions. But guess what? There was a righteous remnant saved out of it. And that's how it will be again in the end time. That's 3rd Nephi chapter eight, terrible destructions. And then Jesus comes down
0: to the Nephites. 3rd Nephi chapter nine through 11. And then Jesus teaches the people, gives them his gospel. Unless the
1: gospel, he calls disciples, gives them, appoints them to certain ministries. That's in Third Nephi twelve through twenty-eight, and then finally, uh, as we read in a moment, they become a happy people. So there's that sequence of events that typifies the coming of the Lord, and that's how it will be again. He and terrible destructions throughout the world, but particularly here in this land. land is a target for the enemies of God's people. After that, Jesus will descend to a remnant of his people that will be gathered by the kings and queens of the Gentiles to Zion, to the Old and New Jerusalems. And then the Lord's teachings will go worldwide. And as Jesus said in other scriptures, the true points of his doctrine will be taught. We're still laboring under, under many precepts of men at the present time that have no scriptural basis. When you actually examine what the scriptures say, they don't say a lot of things that we believe. That's in 3 Nephi 12-28. And then, 4 Nephi 1.16, Mormon says, There could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. And that is a great type of a millennial people of God how it will be in the millennial age. How long does the millennial age last? It lasts a thousand years, right? But guess what? It's not a thousand years of telestial time as it is now. As we know, one day of the Lord is like a thousand years to us, right? The so one day of God's time is like a thousand years of telestial time. So the millennial age being a terrestrial time, a time when paradise reigns upon the earth, we go to a new Garden of Eden situation throughout the earth during that thousand years of terrestrial time. How long do you think that will be then? A well, lot longer than we've just a thousand years of our current time. And then the earth itself will be celestialized. It will attain a celestial glory and become, as the prophet Joseph Smith saw, a sea of glass. And then we will dwell in everlasting burnings with God, all those who remain upon the earth. That is where the ultimate,
0: that is the ultimate goal of the Earth, history of the Earth, where it's going. All right, so let's summarize. And we'll say, the Book of Mormon selectively uses history to
1: typify many end-time events. In that respect, the Book of Mormon is so informative of us, to us. What a gift it is to us. When we immerse ourselves in the Book of Mormon, we are immersing ourselves in a way in the prophecies of the end time. Especially today, I would recommend reading the Book of Helaman as I have before, saying, compare this with what's happening in our world today. And the time frame of what we just read is the time of the end when all scriptural patterns repeat themselves. All scriptural patterns repeat themselves in the end time. And the time of the Lord's coming. And moving forward, question, are we open to disabusing our minds of the precepts of men, things we have assumed were true, but that have no real scriptural basis? Like the Great Amountless Work, right? And take it all the way through the Book of Mormon, wherever it mentions Great Amountless Work. It's not the restoration of the gospel and priesthood. It's not talking about the time of Joseph Smith. It's an end-time scenario. Isaiah's mention of the Great Amountless Work in chapter twenty. 9 of Isaiah. It's part of an end-time scenario. It's not even the time of Joseph Smith. Number two, are we prepared to pay the price of learning what the scriptures actually say not what we have assumed they say? Especially if some repenting is involved on our part. And that's always the catch. It seems like we always have something to repent of. Isn't that interesting? Well, have you seen the Lord? No. No haven't you? No? Let's say no. Then, in that case, you have something to repent of, right? Because that is the Lord's promise to you, that you'll see God. So the next time, we're going to read about keywords, code names, and word links, and what the Scriptures tell us by them. And my recommended reading for this week, or listening, Windows on the Prophecy of Isaiah. Thank you for joining us. Please share. Hope to see you next time.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn who or what is the Lord's arm? Why does Isaiah use the metaphor of God's arm to identify a person? Does God have one or two arms? What are the key end time roles of God's arms?